Hi, this is Mark, lead pastor of Lux Digital Church. I want to thank you for joining us today and also invite you to join with us live at twitch.tv slash Church every Wednesday night at 8.30 p.m. EST. Thank you for joining us and please enjoy this message. Hey everybody, and welcome to Lux Digital Church. I'm so glad to have you here with us tonight. My name is Mark, and I'm the lead and founding pastor here at Lux. And if you're joining us for the very first time tonight, welcome in. I'm glad that you're here. We've been praying for you. We're excited to have you with us. You're a special guest. Whenever you have the opportunity or you feel comfortable, say hello in the chat or drop a follow here on the channel. All that we want to do is welcome you into the community and thank you for coming and joining us tonight. And if you're joining us later on over on On Demand, either on podcast or YouTube, or in one of our VODs on Twitch, then thanks for coming and joining us tonight, and thanks for making Lux part of your week and investing in your spiritual journey. And I'd love for you to not stop there. I'd love for you to come and join us on Discord. In fact, we're going to show a video later tonight because we just reworked how we're using Discord for a whole brand new onboarding process. And so if it was overwhelming to you before or you've never really been fond of Discord, I would ask you to try it again. Come and join us on Discord. If you leave the server, rejoin if you're already in it, if you felt like it was overwhelming and come get to know your church family over there. We are there 24-7 every day of the year. That's where we live and where we do life together, where we do small groups and where we grow together and Bible studies and book studies and all sorts of stuff. Lots of really incredible stuff to hang out in and, and, and just jump in a conversation with and plenty of conversation about Tears of the Kingdom right now, which is a beautiful game, by the way, if you're not playing it yet. And so if you're joining us later on on demand, I hope to see you in Discord soon. Tonight, we are in part seven of a nine-week collection of talks called Things Jesus Never Said. And in this collection of talks, we have been talking about either misconceptions about who Jesus was, and there are many of those, or we've been talking about our culture as a whole and how our culture tends to sort of it, I don't know, infect or infiltrate our minds. And we adopt some of the things from the culture into our walks as followers of Jesus, even if those things aren't very representative of who Jesus was or what Jesus taught. And with all the misinformation out there about Jesus, it can become really important just to know that some of the things that Jesus didn't say are just as important as some of the things that Jesus did say. And tonight we are going to tackle what may, what might be one of the most pervasive and at times dangerous lies that has been sometimes supported by and certainly propagated by the church itself. I'm really excited to dive into that with you, and I want to dive into it by first asking if you've ever really heard before the comment of like, all you need to do is follow Jesus and your life will be easier. All you need to do is to follow Jesus and your life will be happy. All that you need to do, follow Jesus and you will be rich or famous or influential or your marriage will be saved or yada, yada, yada. Uh, and most of us have never heard exactly that quote, but the sentiment comes from a portion of church history over the last, well, I don't know, had a handful of decades called something something called the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. At the very beginning of this series, I talked about the rise of hellfire and brimstone preaching that swept across the nation and stayed here for almost 200 years in the United States. In several places, it sparked beautiful revival, but in many others, it caused and did a lot of damage. We talked about how there were some elements of the hellfire and brimstone preaching style that were true and accurate, but there were also 
also some of them that were really unloving and untrue and really unhelpful to the church. And the church stuck with it for a really long time. But as technology began to increase and lives began to get easier in uh, like sort of the post-World War II era when people's lives became more secure and felt a little bit more peaceful, we saw a lot of people break away from churches that preached hellfire in brimstone every week from the pulpit. And instead, they began to find their home inside of churches that had more hopeful and loving messages. And in many ways, that was a good thing. But as you know, in our world, sometimes we swing really hard one way as human beings. And in response to that, we tend to string really hard back in the other direction, which in church history, in recent church history, is pretty much exactly what happened. Towards the beginning of the 20th century, the sort of era of positive thinking began to emerge, and with it, many churches gravitated towards it and caught on. Now, not because of it, but it'd be in addition to it, sort of the spread of the charismatic movement came across the United States and began to move into other parts of the world, and that revival sparked new churches. And many of those new churches came out with a very different type of message than had been preached before, where beforehand we were told that we were lower than worms and lower than dirt. And God not only could, but almost like the preacher and God would take some level of pleasure in seeing us burn forever in hell. It shifted to this really hope filled and loving acceptance that all that you really had to do was embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, say a quick prayer, and then your life would be better. Now, in the worst case scenarios of some of this preaching and teaching, it became known as the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth preaching. The health and wealth preaching basically said that all you needed to do was follow Jesus or decide to follow Jesus and you would become, well, happy and healthy and your relationships would be fixed and uh, you would be rich as well. There was actually some TV evangelists at the time that would say things like, if you will give to our church today, I promise you that God will return to you sevenfold everything that you had given before. And to be fair, some of these teachings and ideas were actually relatively supported by the Bible. And some of them were supported by passages like this from John 14, 14, where it says, yes, this is Jesus speaking, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you don't believe that this exists, it doesn't take a long Google search to be able to find pastors online and TV evangelists promising you immediate financial reward. And to be honest with you, I understand why people jumped in with both feet. I mean, it sounds rather appealing you know, a, a sort of light commitment on your part. You give financially and it's given back to you. I mean, if anybody would like to do the, I give you $100 and there's suddenly $700 in my pocket trick, I'm I'm actually kind of down to sign up for that as long as I'm the one giving $100 and getting my pockets padded with $700. That actually sounds pretty dope to me. I would love that. Uh, and, and, you know, there was a lot of conversation around when people got sick that they just needed to pray more or to believe more. Your children walked away 
graduate from the Lord. You just needed to believe more. And if your children didn't come back to the Lord or if you didn't get better but ended up back in the hospital or you didn't receive seven times as much as you had gave to the church, then the response was very frequently that you just didn't have the faith for it or you didn't pray hard enough or your marriage fell apart. Well, maybe you should have really come to that marriage conference that we did at church recently. That probably would have saved it. You're just not dedicated enough. You haven't believed hard enough to be able to receive the promised blessings of God. And some of this stuff was kind of supported by what the Bible said. So the question for that I have is this, like, is it true? Like realistically, is it accurate? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that the Bible talks about, and some of the stuff that Jesus did talk about is rather positive. I mean, he does say in John 14, 4, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The gospel literally means the good news. Jesus did come to spread the gospel to tell people about the kingdom of God, which was to be good news. He came to reconcile us to God our Father, and God our Father wants to bless us. So is it really wrong to talk about the fact that if we follow Jesus, that will have an easier life. Well, unfortunately, there's not a passage anywhere in the Bible that it says that if you follow Jesus, your life will get easier. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you were hoping that there was, but you're not going to be able to print that one off and hang it on your wall inside your house. Just Jesus said, just follow me and everything in life will get easy. But he did say this in the book of John chapter 16, verse 33. It says this, I have told you all this, this is Jesus speaking, so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. This comes to us at kind of the tail end of a grouping of things that Jesus is saying to his disciples. And some of those is that Jesus is going to go home to his father. And then he tells them that I'm going to go away from you for a little while, and then you'll see me again, and then I'll go away from you again. He tells them that there's going to be a time where they're going to be very sad, and then there's going to be a time when they will experience great joy. And the disciples are horribly confused by this. They can't understand at all what Jesus is talking about. And to be fair, they lived on the other side of the resurrection. So how could they possibly know that Jesus is talking about being arrested and crucified, and through it they would be sad, and he would go to the grave for three days and they would mourn and then he would come back to life and suddenly, bam, they would be happy and then he would go away from them again. A really confusing string of statements that Jesus makes. So they don't really understand what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus knows this. And so he goes to his disciples who he realizes are terribly confused in this passage in John 16, just before the passage that we just read. And he tells them, listen, I, I'm going to go away to my father. And when I do, when he leaves and ascends in into heaven, you will be able to ask for anything in my name. And if you ask for it in my name, you will receive it. It's probably one of the most compelling passages in the Bible for the name it and claim it prosperity gospel that came about. Like literally, I name it and I ask for it in Jesus' name, so I claim it. I actually had somebody in college at one point, which is so funny because I know this is not his theology now, but I was in college with him. He was a freshman and he said, well, in my church, we believe that if you pray that you will get a million dollars and you have the faith to believe that you'll get it, that you will just get a million dollars. And I was like... That seems a very odd belief to me. <laughs> seems, I mean, I have prayed for things, and I've believed that God is capable of things, 
but I'm yet to have God just drop a million dollars off at my doorstep. And I'm sure that the disciples were very confused as well, because right after Jesus gets done saying, if you want anything, if there's anything that you need, you'll ask for it in my name and it will be given to you by my heavenly father. He then immediately says that in this life, you will have trials. It's translated as hardships in some other translations. And I don't know about you, but if I'm signing up for the group that like gets anything that they want, if they just pray in Jesus name, one of the first things that I'm praying for is a life without trials or hardships. Uh, sign me up for the easy road, please. I'll take that one. So when I read this passage, I'm like, well, which one is it, Jesus? Uh, do we get anything that we want? Or in this life, will there be hardship? Do I pray and get whatever I want? Or in this life, will it be really difficult? Will there be trials? Will there be problems? I'm confused. And I'm sure at the time, the disciples were really confused as well. And they figured out what he meant later. But it wasn't until a while later. I'm a father. I have two little girls. My youngest is three and a half. And my oldest, Brooklyn, will be six in just two days. Which she's so excited about her birthday. And I remember whenever Brooklyn was born, of course, because I was there. And I remember the first time I took her into my arms. And I remember this overwhelming feeling of both love and fear. Love, because I felt like I would literally die for this child. I had just met them. And for a dad, it's very different. I feel like Jen had a lot of that experience while carrying Brooklyn. But for me, holding her changed things for me. And I was fearful because it was very much like they say, that there was a part of my heart or a part of me that was suddenly living outside of me, a part that could be hurt and a part that could be damaged and a part that would be rather difficult for me to protect. With everything in me, all I really wanted to do for her was protect her and to provide for her. And I have got to watch her grow up over the last six years. And I think it was sometime last summer, I was outside and she was next door playing at our neighbor's house. They have a couple of little girls and a swing set. And I watched Brooklyn climbing on the slide in a way that I knew for a fact she was going to fall off from. It was like one of those things. Or as a parent, I'm looking and I'm like, do I stop her? Is it dangerous? Is it that dangerous? And she fell and she got hurt. She wasn't hurt badly, but she came to me crying. And a few minutes later, she was back to the swing set. And she was playing again. And she was happy to be back playing with her friends. But the next time she went up on the slide, she didn't go up on the slide the same way she did before. Because pain had taught her a valuable lesson. That I shouldn't climb the slide that way. And life has its ways of teaching us those things. And there'll come a time in Brooklyn's life where she'll be in pain and it won't be physical. And it won't be because of something that she did. She'll lose someone who's close to her or someone will disappoint her or someone who will mistreat her or someone will make fun of her and she'll experience pain that lets her know that the world is broken and that people let you down sometimes and that life can be hard, that things aren't always easy. Even if you believe in God and even if you're a follower of Jesus, that sometimes life hurts. And I could do my best to try to protect her from everything and to give her everything that she wants. 
But if I protect her from everything, she'll never learn the proper way to go up the slide because I'll always be swooping in to save her. If I protect her from everything, she'll never understand how to discern if someone's motives are good or not. If I protect her from everything, she'll rarely be able to understand when life is good and blessed because she won't know what it's like when life isn't, when it hurts, and when it's hard. And if I gave to my daughter everything that she ever wanted, well, to be honest with you, she often wants really stupid things. I mean, I love her, but she's six. If I gave her the option, she would eat chicken nuggets and maybe the occasional cheeseburger every night for dinner. And she would be horribly unhealthy and she would never be able to taste the delicious spice of sriracha or the saltiness of a medium cooked sirloin steak. And if I left her to her own devices all day, she would watch YouTube all day and she would rot away her brain and never really truly discover her God-given intelligence, which is substantially greater than her father's, by the way. I mean, substantially. I think at six, she has a vocabulary about as good as mine. And if you watch service earlier, she'd probably be able to transition between different pieces of service better than me, to be honest with you. She's wildly intelligent. And she would just sit around and never be able to get the chance to explore her intelligence or her God-given brain or body. If I gave her everything that she wanted, she might have everything that she wanted. But it wouldn't be good for her. There's this really compelling quote by an author named C.S. Lewis, which we're actually talking about right now in Doc's book study over in our Discord through the book Mere Christianity. But this book is from, uh, or this quote is from a different book called The Weight of Glory. And it might be St. Bear's favorite quote. I don't know if he's here tonight. And it says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is something that the disciples discovered. It was shortly after John chapter 16 that Jesus would be arrested and they would be sad. He would be beaten and they would be sad. He would be crucified and they would mourn. He would be buried and for three days he would be dead. And then he would rise again and they would have joy. When he ascended into heaven and left them shortly after that in an upper room inside of Jerusalem, they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And they would receive something that is so wild and different from what they ever thought. And as they diligently prayed and asked God, God did not give them everything that they wanted. He didn't make life happy, nor did he make it easy for them. It wasn't like they were sitting around and praying for gold and God gave them a tree to grow gold on. It wasn't like they were sitting around praying for, I don't know, whatever, the Romans to leave Israel or for, I don't know, them to... I guess, catch a lot of fish the next time they went fishing because many of them were fishermen and God blessed them with it. God didn't give them an easy life. In fact, after the Holy Spirit came upon them, most of them were hunted and imprisoned and beaten and tortured. And every single one of those original 12, with the exception of John, died the death of a martyr. And John, who wrote the book of John that we're reading, died as an exile in prison on an island alone. In fact, none of them had an easy life. 
if you would look, you would actually think that most of them had a perpetually hard life, that their existence was very difficult. And I wonder if they reflected back on what Jesus had said before, that if you ask for anything in my name, that I'll give it to you. And I'm sure that they did. But there was something that they understood then. What they wanted changed. They no longer wanted the things that they wanted before. An easy, cushiony life that was just healthy and happy and simple seemed pale in comparison to what it was to be the sons and daughters of God himself. Being welcomed into God's family was so much more powerful and being about God's work became so much more important to them than simply having an easy life. They were no longer satisfied with simple earthly things. They were no longer satisfied with physical possessions. They were chasing after something bigger, something greater, something grander. And when we pursue our Heavenly Father, we learn very quickly that small and insignificant earthly things will no longer satisfy us. And God has no desire to placate or distract you any longer with more material things, with another relationship that your loins or that your brain long for, with another thing that your eyes eyes lust for with another whatever god isn't in the business of just giving you the things that he that you want and this is why it matters this is why it matters ready jesus didn't come to offer an easy life he uh, he came to set you free from living an orphaned life jesus didn't come to give you an easy life he came to set you free from living an orphaned life Every one of us, when we come into this world, we come in as orphans, spiritually. We're born originally to be sons and daughters of the Father, our Heavenly Father. But we're born into a state of sin and into a world that's absolutely broken. My daughter was born into a family with two parents that love her, but Brooklyn was born as a spiritual orphan. And until she finds Jesus, she lives as an orphan. And our orphan's hearts cry out, looking and longing for purpose and meaning in something greater. A universal longing echoes across all of humanity that says that life should be different, that something's broken, that something needs fixed, and that we are supposed to be part of fixing it instead of breaking it. This universal longing is true only of the pinnacle and the crowning piece of God's creation, humanity. He placed in us a God-given desire to return home, to no longer live as orphans in the world, but instead to be reinstated as sons and daughters of the king. And the disciples discovered that Jesus didn't come to give them an easy life. He came to make them sons and daughters of the king again. And God offers the same opportunity to us that we no longer need to live with wounded and orphaned hearts, but we have a chance to step into a relationship with Jesus Christ in such a way that it realigns us with God our Father. That when he looks upon us, he doesn't see the brokenness of sin and the wretchedness of our hearts, which there is plenty of, but instead he sees the sacrifice of his son and he welcomes us as sons and daughters into a magnificent and beautiful kingdom and our appetite simply cannot ever 
never be the same. The world can't satisfy those who pursue God and his presence. You're no longer interested in the things of the world in the way that you were before. The cushy life that you may have desired and worked hard for is pale and silly. It's like fractured pieces of God that have laid around on the ground and been stomped on feet and have been obscured. They no longer satisfy the longings of our hearts once we have tasted the presence of God. We're no longer interested in the silly and futile momentary things of this world because we have tasted 